You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus, deliverance, a way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy, for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom, a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Good morning. It's good to be back. I was out for a couple weeks hunting. Some of those stories might make their way in later. And it's good to be back this morning. So it's good to be here with you guys preaching and teaching God's word. So we're going to be diving in to a new series this morning. So if you're here and it's your first time here, welcome. This is a great time to jump in because we're all jumping to this, uh, jumping into this book called Exodus Together. And so we'll all be doing this together for the first time this morning. With that, if you would turn in your Bible to the book of Exodus. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, it's your first time to kind of navigate it. It's the second book in the Bible. So it's going to be toward the beginning. Exodus chapter one. We're going to be covering the first chapter today. So we've got some groundwork to do. Why Exodus? Why Grace Upon Grace for a series title? Why we're working through this? Who's the author? All all of that good stuff. But let me start with this. In the best Rocky out of all the Rocky movies, Rocky IV, I'm not going to argue this again. We've argued this in the past. It's it's number four. In Rocky IV, he's getting ready to fight the Russian Ivan Drago. And and, And he's signed up for the fight, and he has this conversation with his wife. And his wife, Adrian, as he says, loves to tell the truth. And she tells him this. She says these three words to him. Three words that could crush you. Three words that could demoralize you. Three words that no fighter would ever want to hear. She tells him this. She says, you can't win. And those are the words that she left him with. And then comes the song, No Easy Way Out, and this whole video and everything like that to show Rocky's training plan. But those are the words that she told him. This book that we're reading today that sits aside 65 other books inside of this library that we call the Bible, has the power to save, transform, and heal your life. And the three words I want you to walk away with remembering today are these three words. You can't lose. And we'll understand what that means and the meaning of that. And for someone who's so highly competitive that I hate losing so bad. In fact, 
If you want to bring out everything unholy inside of me that exists, just play a board game with me. In fact, my wife says that it's unenjoyable. I become fluent in French quickly. So I just, I get so wrapped up. We played catchphrase once and, and I almost broke the thing. Just, it just creates so much anxiety. I hate losing. My wife and I played shuffleboard. It's the same thing. She's just like, you're not enjoyable to play games with. So I've grown a lot. That was a couple months ago. So this is me today. So. I, I say that to say all of those things are connected to these words that we need to hear because all of our big emotions are typically rooted and connected to an idol, something that we are worshiping. The book of Exodus is going to look at worshipers, and God is calling a people to be worshipers of him. So with that, let's dive in. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to work through this today. You can't lose and see what that means. Father, we recognize that there's people in our church family this morning that are hurting. We recognize that there's people that are grieving. We recognize that there's people in pain, but we also recognize there's people rejoicing. Father, thank you that we share the greatest identity in common, which binds us, which keeps us, which secures us, and that's that we are hidden in Christ. The greatest battle that, that, that has ever needed to be fought, that, that, that ever needs to be fought, has been fought by you and you alone, Christ, and you won. Our lives are hidden in your victory, and we praise you for that. I pray your word would be our authority. I pray your word would convict us. I pray it would encourage us. I pray it would humble us. God, you've spoken. Thank you for an epic story like Exodus. It's incredible. God, thank you that you show and display that you are the redeemer, the healer, the one who gives the greatest Exodus, the Exodus that our hearts need from our sin, from our idolatry. Father, minister to us this morning. We declare our need for you. We love you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at this this morning, <clears throat> that you can't lose. And we're going to look at three primary things, that you can't lose the name that you have, that you can't lose the kingdom that's been given to you, and you can't lose the approval that you have from God. Those are the three things that we're going to look at. One more time. You can't lose the name, the identity that you have. You can't lose the kingdom that's yours. And you can't lose the approval that you have from God. All those things are radically secure and held in Christ. As we look at this series this morning, it's, it's going to be helpful for us to do this. We have to know how in the world we got to the book of, of Exodus in the first place and why we've called it grace upon grace. If you go back several years ago, we did a series of the book of Genesis and we called it grace from the beginning. And the reason for this is simple is because there was a early heretic in the church whose name was Marcion. And Marcion taught that there were essentially two different gods. There's the God of the Old Testament, which is a very rash, uh, wrathful, vengeful, angry God. And then there's the God of the New Testament, who's very nice and chipper and cheery. And so therefore, Marcion wanted to get rid of certain books. He had a, 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 just a completely distorted view of who God is. And part of it is because we have to understand that God is immutable. He's unchangeable. So it's, it's always been the same God. So when we looked at Genesis, we had to see this, that God created out of grace. God's mode of operation has always been of God of grace. And where we get to today, we'll see that that continues. And so first, if we go all the way back to Genesis 1, which is a good place for us to start today, we see this, that God created in all of creation, all of life, all of existence is all of God's grace. It's because for eternity, God has existed. God was never insufficient. God was never lonely. God was never bored. He was never like, we should create humans because I need something. God created out of a desire, purely out of grace. Human existence and life and planet Earth is all of grace. And as we work through the book, we see grace upon grace. As we get to the second chapter, we see God creates humanity. He creates 
Adam and Eve. And he calls his creation very good. And then what we see is something go wrong in Genesis chapter 3. We see this. The man and woman decide that they're going to choose what's good and what's not good. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we have this. We have what's called the Proto-Euangelion. Proto means original or first. And it's the first declaration of the gospel. It says this, Genesis 3, 15. This is after man and woman had rebelled. Adam and Eve had pushed back and said, we will decide what's good and what's not. And this is God speaking. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What he's talking about and what he's talking to is the serpent in the garden. And he's saying this. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to bring someone. And this is the first promise, the first declaration we have of the Messiah, of the gospel, of God's good news, that he's going to bring someone that's going to crush the serpent. But in crushing the serpent's head, pay attention to serpent language. It's going to come up again. In crushing the serpent's head, his heel's going to be bruised. So if God wanted to, he'd be fully just. Our Bible would end at Genesis 3. Done. Bible closed. Three chapters in. But because God is a God of grace, God continues the story. And God's continuing of the story is God trying to reconcile creation back to him. And what man has tried to do since the garden is we recognize our lack of goodness. We recognize our lack of imperfections. Therefore, we have a world of people trying to perfect themselves and make themselves good apart from Christ. You get to Genesis 9 and you see that God makes this covenant. And he makes this covenant with Noah. But what he tells Noah is the same thing that he told Adam and Eve. This, this language is important. He says, be fruitful and multiply and increase. Fill the land and subdue it. God is telling Adam and Eve, God is telling Noah to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. Then when we get to Genesis chapter 37 through 50, we see something go real bad. There's this man named Joseph. He's a dreamer. He tells his brothers about his dream. They sell him into slavery. But in doing so, he becomes the prime minister, the second in command in Egypt to a man named Pharaoh. And by doing so, he also is able to provide, in a sense, salvation for his family. Because he goes there, because he stores up food, because he plans, because he is sent ahead, a whole people group are spared. And so there's this horrific story of just ugliness, of sin and oppression, of jealousy, selling your brother. But through this horrific evil, God uses it to save his people the nation of Israel, and spare them and bring them into safety and save them from starvation. So that's where we're at. Israel is now in Egypt because a man named Joseph brought them there. Does this story sound familiar at all? You get to Matthew. There's a man named Joseph, who's Jesus' father, who takes him to Egypt as well to spare his life and to bring forth a rescuer and redeemer. So already, that's where we're at. We have people here in the land of Egypt. They've been here 400 years. This is not 40 months. This is not 40 years. This is 400 years of slavery and oppression. The, the video, it's dark, as you guys just saw, because 400 years of bondage and slavery is dark. We didn't want people dancing around looking chipper and joyful. Because that's not where we enter the story. We enter the story with a ton of oppression. But where we enter the story is this. Go to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. In our English Bible, it doesn't give a great start for how the Hebrew actually translate this. It says these, but in Hebrew, the first word here is actually ele, and it's and. So this book, Exodus, actually starts with the conjunction and. And what it's saying is, yes, there's grace from the beginning. Yes, there's this horrific story, and the story continues. And there's grace upon grace. If you look 
at the Israelites from Genesis to Malachi, what you don't see is people getting radically better. What you see is grace upon grace and God's faithfulness to his covenant and to his people. So this book starts off with, with a continuance. It's an and. And here's where we're at today. Let's look here. Verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. There's Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishakar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This book is called Exodus because Exodus comes to us by way of Greek, which means a deliverance, an exit, a way out. But for the Hebrew audience, this book that we call Exodus was called Shemot because Shemot means names. It's the book of names because names are significant. The name Joseph means to increase greatly. The name Moses means to draw out. Names and titles of names are important because they have meaning to a Hebrew audience. This was written to a Jewish audience. This was written on the other side of the Exodus. This was written back to them so they would have encouragement to know that they can always look back and see the faithfulness of their God as they look forward to pain and strife and hurt that is still ahead. So when we read this, we have to first try not to read our lens back into this culture. This was written from a Jewish man to a Jewish audience. It's descriptive in nature, not prescriptive, meaning that it's not saying do this, this, and this, but we can take descriptive literature that's historically faithful and accurate, inspired and inerrant, and we can learn how it applies to our lives. We also understand names are important because names are connected to an identity. And these people and these names are connected to God as his covenant people. God called Israel his treasured possession, his firstborn, his bride. Those are some of the names that God has given the nation of Israel. These names are here, and this book starts with a list of names, just like the Gospel of Matthew starts with a list of names. Why? Because through this line and through these names comes that offspring. The one promised in Genesis 3, uh, 3.15 comes the Messiah. In the book of Matthew, what we see is the genealogy. That's how it starts off. Why would Matthew start it off like that? Because we're seeing that Christ, the Messiah, has come through these lists of names. The names are important because there's identity, there's meaning, but a Messiah is coming through the names. For instance, there's, there's, a, there's a newborn baby that's here this morning. This is a great time just to welcome him to the GCC family. His name is Trip Leibolt, okay? I believe that name was picked out before his dad and I, he's our executive pastor, went on a hunting trip, and he missed the birth of his child. There's no shame, just, just telling facts here, Brad, that's all. It's tough being providers, guys, it's real hard. Though we haven't provided an elk in about 10 years. So, we were on a trip. <laughs> They're never gonna forget <laughs> the meaning of Tripp's name because dads were on a trip whenever Tripp was born. Just a real simple way to understand that these names for people were connected to something in their minds. But more than that, they were connected to the God who saved them who has redeemed them in the past and the same God that is consistently, faithfully working presently in their lives to do the same thing. And you have to hear this. The nation of Israel did not get their name as God's treasured possession because they were a great nation, because they were a mighty nation, because they did uh, just heroic acts. God saved them because they were small and helpless. God saved them out of a mode of operation called his grace. There was nothing in them that made him choose them. He wanted to himself. 
When you become a child of God, when you place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you have an identity, and we've said this over and over again, I'll say it again, that is unshakable. The earth could pass away. Everest could be moved before your identity in Christ could ever be moved or shaken. It's unshakable. Your name is bound with you for eternity. They are here in a land where they are oppressed, which means this. When you live in a culture where slavery and oppression exists, you are property, which means this. Your name can change. They likely had different names. They were likely called different names. There are children born into our world today that are born without a mother and father, and they have no name. You imagine so much is shifting and changing around you, and maybe the one thing you don't think could change, your name changes. For them, though, and the way that starts off is you can't lose your identity that God has given you. You will, from this day forward, for all eternity, have this identity. You are a child of God. And that's the truest, purest, greatest thing about you is you have this identity that can't be removed from you. You cannot lose that name. You cannot lose that title. Israel could not lose being God's special possession, being God's treasured possession, being God's bride. That is a title God gave. And God doesn't go back on what he says. Jesus makes that clear in John 6 when he says, all that the Father has given me, I will not lose any of them. So we have to start off understanding that's where they're at. That's what's going on. We have this list of names, and we have a rough start. There's death. There's the loss of family. But then let's pick up and see what happens next in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh, store cities, Pithom and Ramesses, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So first, we can't lose the title and identity. Next, we're going to look at what we can't lose is the kingdom that's been made ours. What we can start to see here is we can start to see there's this new king in the land. Pharaoh is simply a title. We don't even know his name. Pharaoh is a title of the king of Egypt. And there's a new one. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know the people, but we do know this. The people are multiplying like crazy. In fact, we know later in Exodus that the people are 600,000 men. That doesn't include women and children. So you're talking about these people grew into a people group that was over a million people. So what happens? When you are a tyrannical leader who's a dictator, who lives in fear of losing his empire, it makes you irrational, it makes you narcissistic, and it makes you do things to oppress people. Here's what we recognize. When we read stories, oftentimes in our Bible, we will do one of two things. We will look at the hero of the story and then try to see ourselves in the hero of the story. Or we will see the victims in the story and then go, I'm probably like them too. What we don't do is we don't look at Pharaoh and go, I kind of see some of my own stuff in him. We tend to have a pretty high view of ourselves. What I believe Moses, the author, and I'm going to credit authorship to Moses because Jesus does in Mark 12, 26. I believe what Moses is doing is saying this. What we get to see in the, in the first chapter of the book of Exodus is what sin and idolatry does to the human heart. 
we get an external picture of how gross and vile sin and idolatry is. We see that it leads to oppression. We see that it leads to genocide. We see that sin is like a snowball. It builds and builds, and in it is the path of destruction. That's what we're getting to see here. So we should see how are we, and what Israel should see as they hear this, on the other side, how are we also being like Pharaoh? Where, where does there need to be a greater exodus? So yes, there needs to be an exodus out of oppression, out of slavery, out of bondage from a horrible master. But once they get out, we're going to notice something. There's a whole lot that's in here for them that still needs to be rescued, which is why we could change every system in the world, overthrowing all sorts of oppression. But if you don't give people the greatest exodus of a new heart and a new life found only in Jesus Christ, it's all going to be a bunch of work that doesn't have salvific value to it. The question becomes then, if we can become like Pharaoh's and start to build our little empires, our little structures, our little infrastructures that we have, what are those things? What are those things? Because those things are connected to an idol in our heart. God is in control. And what we do is we want control. And so we'll do whatever we can to gain control. And if we're starting to lose our many empires that we've built and that we've created, by the way, Egypt is not here today. The country is. But as far as like the empire goes from this Mecca that it once was, it's not here. What do we do? We start to do the same thing that Pharaoh did. We're so fearful of losing something, something that we've built, something that we have in place that we do whatever we can to try and gain control of it. What are some of those empires? I'm going to list a few. A career empire. You will do anything you can to make sure this empire succeeds and doesn't fall. People can be a means to build your success. Greed can be a way to maintain your success. What can take your joy and make you mopey and moody is when you're not hitting the goals you should be, making the money you should, and your empire starts to look fragile. Some people start to build an empire out of career and out of success and out of money. It's a fragile empire. Pay attention to your emotions. Mopey, moody emotions are typically traced to an idol and an idol of control. I'm, I'm, I'm so in control that I need to control my bank account and everything like that. That's where my actual hope is found. What about a family empire? You would do anything to build a family and have a family structure. I'll marry the wrong man or woman because this is my absolute priority. Once I have it, I must protect it and rule it. This means everyone must love me and I will control things to make sure of this. Everyone must need me because as a ruler of my little empire, I need to be needed. My spouse and kids exist to give me security. And if they are doing anything that jeopardizes that, I will have to adjust to regain my control. I'm flustered and mopey when this family empire is shaken. What about a ministry empire? Honestly, I don't want to read it but I think it's a very real one that we see inside of the church today. And this one can look good. You essentially build a church empire on the faithfulness of local church members. The family members aren't much more than a means to build up your reputation and gain you a status quo. What greater way to feed narcissism than to try and build a name for yourself and use Christ's bride as a means to do that. Don't challenge these leaders. Don't expect them to participate in areas other members do because that would allow you to get to know who they are. Want to see them become moody and mopey? Let the church shrink or let people think that their way is not awesome. This is a big one for us. We plan it out of a CrossFit gym, our body image empire. My empire and infrastructure is actually my body, and I'm doing everything I can to control a certain outcome. Losing control of your body and beauty can feel like the world is spiraling out of control. The fear of weight gain, the fear of looking a certain way, I can't actually uh, enjoy food, enjoy a meal, and relationships that exist around food and drinks because all I can think about is myself. 
I will sacrifice my family, real health, and relationships all to make sure I don't lose control of this body empire. All this is wrapped up in one last empire. It's just called the me empire. This empire encapsulates all the other empires. I have to build up my persona. I have to build up my image. I have to do this because I am not settled with who I am, and I need you to approve of me. I'm shaken by correction. I am combative when approached. I am stunted by my guilt, my fear, and my shame, and I'm doing everything I can to fix what is broken on the outside to deal with what I know is completely shattered on the inside. I'll take care of me. I will love myself. I will just be me. This is a means to try and gain security. And these people become mopey and moody when they lose that. You see, we're not that different. And here's the thing, as a pastor that's been doing this for a while, every single person thinks they have control of their sin and of their idols. No one ever thinks that your sin and your idol is going to spiral, that it's going to look like something like this, that it's gonna look like genocide or some sort of path of destruction. But I can tell you this, when you live with the idol of control, I have to figure out how to gain control. What you're saying is, God, I don't trust your good control over my life, the big and the small details. I need to be in control. In that becomes a path of destruction. You will die a million deaths in this lifetime and you will see the people behind you devastated by your empire that you try to build and the control that you try to keep with it just like Pharaoh did. What we have in Christ is a completely different king and a completely different kingdom. You see, every king and kingdom, basically from all all humanity past, is always one off the backs of other people, just like Pharaoh's doing here. Essentially, what they're doing here is they are doing this. They're like, let's work them as hard and as long as we can. Let's make it to where they can't procreate. When they get off work, they don't even have energy to have sex. Like, let's shut it all down. And what's happening, the irony here is incredible. The language for what they're building is the same language we actually see that the Babylonians did with the Tower of Babel. But they're building with brick. They're building with more of the same thing they did. What's what's ironic is this, is they are enslaving them to build this empire when in all reality, God is building a holy priesthood and all the riches this empire has when, when the Israelites leave, it all comes with them. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that fixes all the oppression, everything they're going through, but I just think it's so ironic that they think they're getting rich off these people's backs and all that they are building up, God is saying, this is all gonna be yours. You see, in, in, in the kingdom of Christ, we have one man not asking for your shed blood, but he offers his shed blood. You see, we have one man who's the snake crusher who comes in and crushes Satan. And what he does is he welcomes into his family an unshakable family with an unshakable name and an identity. We are under his provision, his care, his rulership, his reigning, his lordship over our lives. And he's a good master and a good king. And you cannot shake the king's kingdom because the king is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. I have a couple pictures that's going to be helpful because I think that we need to see all scriptures pointing to Christ. (laughs) It's finding its culmination in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What we have to remember is Genesis 3 says uh, to, to the serpent, the serpent's going to do everything the serpent can to stop the Messiah from coming. How is Pharaoh seen in all historical pictures, in all archaeology from the past? How is Pharaoh seen? Let's look at some of the photos of him. You'll notice something as, as, as we go to the next picture and we'll cycle through these. That, that last picture, by the way, that's at the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas today, so you can actually see that. Do you guys notice something that's on Pharaoh's head? It is a snake. It is a serpent. The author of Hebrews, Moses himself, is drawing us to see something. This man is the same 
as the means that the enemy is using to try and stop the Messiah from coming. He is trying to do everything he can to oppress the people of God. But here's one thing you can't do. You cannot lose with God. It's almost like Paul understood this. He's like, neither death nor angels nor rulers or anything can separate you from the love of God. And he says, if God is for you, who can be against you? What's interesting is Tertullian, the early church father, one of them said this, and I'm going to butcher his quote, but essentially the early church was being radically persecuted. But he said, the blood of the martyrs is the fertilizer. It's the seed in which the church flourishes. So as much as the enemy and people try to oppress the people of God, God's like, I'm in control. And there's flourishing. Let's keep moving. You can't lose your name or identity. You can't lose the kingdom which Christ has provided. He's already won. (laughs) He crushed the serpent's head on the cross. Let's look at this. You can't lose your approval. When the king of Egypt said, verse 15, to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Hua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, what, why? why? Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives. God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, Once you have the approval of God, you cannot lose the approval of God. What's happening here is this is what happens when sin and idolatry spirals. Pharaoh and the people, they're afraid of the people of Israel growing strong and then taking them over, losing them and their labor. And so now what has happened is Pharaoh, the king, because his idolatry is doing what sin does, it is continuing to move in a path of destruction, leads to genocide and says to the midwives, kill the babies when they come out. Burstool actually meant like two stones, which could be thought of male babies or it can be thought of the actual place that the babies were born. But can you imagine your labor and delivery? Can you imagine your entire pregnancy in those nine months in dread, hoping that it wasn't a male, fearing the possibility of what is? A lot of times people say that the Hebrew midwives lied. We don't actually have proof of that from the text. It just says that they were too strong. We don't know. Maybe they took forever getting there, like stopped to pick some flowers, maybe made them a bouquet by the time they got there. We, we, we don't know. If you know your baby's going to be dead, it's not like you're going to call on them anyways. What we do know is this. (laughs) Pharaoh doesn't even have a name. Name is a title. We don't even know who this guy is. We do know who Shepra and we do know who Pua are. In fact, Shepra means beautiful one and Pua means splendid one. Why? Because they feared God and not man. They didn't fear the most powerful ruler in all that. Maybe this guy could have got him rich. Maybe he could have got him wealth. Maybe he could have got him recognized. They didn't fear him. They knew this that the approval of this man, the power of this man paled in comparison to the God of Israel. And so they lived with that instead of, like they literally rebelled against the king's orders, but they were faithful to God. They held God's standard up here and everyone else is below that. So much of our lives, we live with this idol of approval. We long for approval. In fact, some of you guys know this story. At my former church, I was an elder candidate for three years, a long time. I think standing today is the longest time anyone's ever been an elder candidate for because of how incredibly unhealthy I was as a leader. And thankfully, God placed some men in my life to call that out. I didn't necessarily care 
that I wasn't being appointed an elder for what that meant for me. I was only concerned about what other people would think about me, not how I sinned against God, not any of that. It's amazing what approval does. It makes us so self-consumed and so self-focused. It's a fear of man. Either man's going to get ahead of me or I'm not going to get something from man. Listen, please, listen. You have a grand canyon-sized hole in your heart that a pebble of man's approval will never, ever, ever satisfy. A glimpse and favor and approval of man can satisfy maybe something for a quick second. Trust me, I grew up longing for my dad's approval but it's never going to satisfy in the way that God's approval only can and will. In fact, this approval idol, I was going to bring one of our elders, Jacob, here, but I won't do it. It's, it's essentially this. If you guys know this song, great. If you don't, you, you, sh- you should consider yourself lucky if not going yet. But there's a song in the 90s uh, by the Cardigans called Love Fool. You guys know this? Uh, the, the, the chorus of the song says, love me, love me. Uh, go, go ahead and love me. And, and she's setting up by saying, I beg, I pray, I plead. And then it says, need me, need me. And essentially, that song is this gross idol of approval. What you're essentially doing is taking someone or something and saying, I need you to give me worth. Like it'd be like me holding Jake up here and saying, smile at me, wink at me, tell me I'm awesome. And it's like, even if he does that, it's not going to satisfy me. In, in, in fact, the, the, the approval Idol is so dark and so gross and so nasty because we've taken and elevated someone to the place of God that it's no longer about me loving them. In fact, the only reason that I'm doing something for them is so they can provide the need, the need of approval I have. So I'll do something for them, but really I'm only loving the approval that they can provide for me to try to give me worth. Approval leads you at your gospel communities wherever you're at going, man, how did I sound? What do they think? What am I thinking of me? It's just all me focused. I bet they think I'm an idiot. Boy, I should have said it like this. What that is, is it something that's never going to produce joy in your life. They with the smallest idols will have the biggest joy. They with the biggest idols are going to have the smallest joy. So what do we do? Because you see two women, and by the way, this is a beautiful story. i got to start to wrap up here. This is a beautiful story, and, and we see this here, but we see this at the beginning of the next chapter, is God uses these faithful women to carry through the life of the Messiah. And if it's not for them, of course, God is faithful and he, and he could do it, but he uses faithful people living out faithfulness to him to accomplish his will. It's, what do we do? We recognize this, that these women serve as a bit of a model to understand that they had the greatest approval they needed. It's not actually a bad thing to long for approval. The problem is, is when we think man is going to give it. Because if you go back to Genesis 1, God looks at his creation and says, it's very good. What we need is we need to be on good terms with God, but what we need is the goodness of God imputed, transferred to us. So what we have is we have Jesus Christ. And I think we need to ask this question all throughout Exodus as we work through this. What is God doing here? But what we need to ask is when we see Jesus Christ on planet earth, living and dwelling inside of his creation is what is God doing here? And the answer to that is God is living a good and perfect life to his creator. Jesus Christ is the only man that's ever walked this earth that found his full acceptance and approval in God and was satisfied in it. Jesus Christ is the only one without, uh, that, that lived without this idol of control. Jesus Christ is the only one that walked in perfect obedience to God. What he did is he took his perfectly good life and he laid it down as a sacrifice on the altar of the cross. And he said, Father, I give this to you as a gift. Now transfer it to them and make it theirs. And in doing so, do this. 
transfer their sin, their idols, their brokenness, and put that on me. And let me put it in the grave. What Jesus does in this is now when God looks at you, you have the eyes of your creator and the eyes of your creator looks at you and these are his words to you in Christ. Very good. Perfect. You possess, Christ was the goodness of God in human flesh. You possess the goodness of God. You are on good terms with God. God looks at you. You can't get any better than good and perfect. That's what Christ made you. You have the gaze of God, not just the gaze of God, but God's delight gazes upon you. You can't ever shake the approval and love that God has for you because it wasn't secured by you, secured by Christ. Your moment by moment, your day by day, you cannot lose the approval God has for you that he supplied in Jesus. What you can start to do, though, is this. Recognize these empires you're building. Recognizing these things that you have are never going to be able to satisfy you. And ask God. First, repent, confess to God. These are the things I'm doing. These are my approval. Again, if we trace any sin, whether it's pornography, whether it's body image, all of this stuff is rooted in some idol. And what we need is not just to start cutting stuff off because idols will sprout up other places as we need to redirect our gaze and worship and go, wow, the God of this universe looks on me every second of every day and sees me and says, that's my son, that's my daughter. They're good. And the more that sinks in, in your heart and your life, I promise you this, because God is faithful. You're going to be like, dang it, man. It's a week after the sermon. I'm still struggling with approval or control. God will grow you in this way, in his time. Psalm 94 says, our, our growth is like the cedars of Lebanon. It's going to be slow, but God is going to be faithful to do the work. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can look back to your faithfulness and look forward to trust with whatever we're going through in life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.